Hello, and welcome to episode three of My Climate Story, a University of Leeds mini podcast series featuring some fantastic alumni who are dedicating their careers to tackling the climate crisis. My name is Simon Moore. I work here at the university, as well as for the community project Climate Action Leads. COP26 has now finished, so today we'll be reflecting on what it's achieved. In particular, we're going to be talking about the implications of the conference on climate finance. Money, money, money. So let's meet my two guests for today who will be sharing their climate stories with us. Joining me is Jennifer Bell, who graduated from Leeds in economics in 2015. Jen is Senior Climate Risk Policy Advisor at the Bank of England, currently supporting Mark Carney as COP26 Private Finance Advisor to the UK government. Jen is working to create the financial system for net zero, which involves creating a framework to allow every financial decision to take climate change into account. Thanks for joining us, Jen. Great to be here. And we're also joined by Professor Ian Clacker, who studied for his PhD at Leeds in Accounting and Finance, which he was awarded in 2008. Ian is still working here at the university as Professor of Pensions and Finance. He's Pro Dean for International at Leeds University Business School, and he's head of the university's new Centre for Financial Technology and Innovation. Ian leads on climate and environmental risk analytics for pensions and asset management within the newly established £10 million UK Centre for Greening Finance and Investment. As part of this project, he's also leading on the development of one of the two climate and environmental risk analytics hubs in Leeds and London. So welcome to the show, Ian. Great to be here. Thank you. So thank you both for joining us today. Uh, it's great to be talking to you. Can, can you both start by telling us what you do exactly in these pretty impressive roles, really. Jen, do you want to go first? Sure. So you put it quite well when you said the aim really is to create the financial system for net zero. And really, that just means getting the impacts of climate change and the transition to net zero integrated into the financial sector. So that means banks, insurers, asset managers, and central banks, and also sort of international financial architecture, thinking about how climate change can impact their business models and how it's in everybody's interest to avoid climate change and pull forward the transition to net zero. So I started thinking about this back at the Bank of England. We really were building the framework from nothing for the for the UK financial system. It was something we hadn't really thought about before, no central banks had, and we had to we had to think of new ways to approach these really challenging problems. So you know, how do you think about the way that climate change can impact the financial sector? How do you integrate climate metrics into stress testing frameworks, for instance? How do you incorporate these longer term issues over 30 years, 40 years and more, when really business models in the financial sector only normally analyse over sort of two to three years? And so I was working on that for a number of years. And then Mark Carney, when he left as governor, we finished his term as governor of the Bank of England last March, uh, March 2020 moved on to take this role at COP26 to really do that at the global international scale. So we've been working to create this global financial system. We've been doing this through implementing comprehensive reporting on climate risks, effective climate risk management, so climate stress testing, as I said before, and also trying to reflect climate in returns. So how can a bank that's setting a net zero target take advantage of the transition to net zero? 
So that's a whistle-stop tour of, of sort of what climate risk management and climate finance means on sort of integrating into financial decision-making. But it is ultimately trying to create those frameworks so that every financial decision takes climate change into account. That's great. Well, yeah, thank, thanks for that, that introduction. And we'll, we'll get into more detail about that, that shortly. Ian, do you want to tell us about, about your role and, and what, what you do exactly? So there's some, some nice overlap here, which is good. Um, so in the UK Centre for Greening Finance and Investment, what we are focused on is taking climate science and translating that into measures and metrics that can be incorporated into financial decision making. So across the consortium, um, which is led by Oxford, but with Imperial, Reading, Bristol and Leeds, uh, we are taking the very best of climate science, which is extremely complicated, as you would expect, but then trying to distill that down into measures and metrics and things that can be incorporated into financial decision making, whether that's in banking, pensions, asset management, insurance and reinsurance and any other part of the financial system. We're also starting to think about how this would potentially start to sit within sort of public sector and government governmental level decision making too. And the the objective is again that all financial decisions start to reflect climate and you're building then resilience into the system and making sure that decisions made today have a climate lens which will have a positive impact coming through in 10, 15, 20 years as we transition to net zero and leveraging finance for good. Very interesting. Um, I guess what, something that just springs to mind listening to both is, is I guess money and particularly in the sort of climate realm, there's almost like a a dirty sort of connotation uh, around you know what is money funding and and is it part of the problem or has it been causing a lot of the problem of of climate change and and you're both almost trying to get away from that sort of framing and and move towards a a brighter future and a brighter kind of outlook of literally greening finance as, as you've said Ian. Jen what what kind of led you to this area of climate finance and and what sort of motivates you to to get up and do this every day? It's a a great point and it's actually something that I think has really changed in perception over the last few years where it used to always be said that finance is just a mirror that reflects you know the real economy and that to a certain extent is true but it could be so much more. It, It is the engine that powers the real economy and it's easy to sort of sit back and say, or we just sort of reflect it. But there are decisions that happen to do with investments, to do with lending, that that ha- these decisions occur. And that does actually have a really significant influence on what happens in the real world, in the real economy. And I mean, Mark Carney in his speech at, at COP26 on Finance Day actually said, finance is no longer a mirror that reflects the world. It's actually now a window into the possibilities of what our, our world could look like. So to, the, to answer your question about what motivates me in, in climate finance and working in this area, well, it's something climate on the climate side. It's something I've definitely been passionate about for a long time. And actually, I was thinking in preparation for coming on this podcast when I first started getting interested in climate change. And I, I think I think it was actually 
early teens, maybe around 10 or something, I remember reading an article in the paper where it just set out in some infographic, you know, what would happen if we had one degrees of warming, 1.5, two degrees. The passion comes from the fact that I think it's an existential threat to humanity and to be able to dedicate your working life to that is really something that's quite a privilege and very motivating. But then on the finance side, the fact that finance is such an engine for the economy and has such power to really just change the whole structure of what we do, I think just really the mirroring, the the coupling of those two things is such a, a fascinating but also really influential thing. And also, lastly, I'd just say it's such an interesting challenge. And these are completely new issues that the financial sector is thinking about. It was back in 2015 when, as governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney first said climate risks are financial risks and the financial sector needs to pay attention to them. And that was really novel back there. That's only six, nearly seven years ago. So it's brand new stuff we're trying to deal with here. And you're taking central banks who have been working on financial risk, financial stability things for decades, for years and years. And you're thinking about new approaches to these issues, new frameworks. And it's just a fascinating challenge that not many people get to rethink the approaches of a hundreds year old institution. Excellent. Well, thank, thanks so much for, for sharing that. Um, Ian, what, what's your kind of take? What, what, what drives you in, in, in your work at the Centre for Green and Finance and Investment? So I'm a pensions geek. That's and I'm very proud of that. It used to be something that I was always a bit sort of shy about saying, but since I did my PhD, um, all the way through, I have loved pensions because there's so many different aspects to it. I'm, I've always been interested in finance broadly defined, but particularly in pensions, and that then starts to look at what is it that somebody gets up after they retire. Now, the fact that you're saving for that length of time, that puts that money together into a collective pool, which we can broadly call asset management. And asset management in this country is huge. Asset management globally is absolutely massive. So if you just look at UK pensions, that's three trillion pounds. And that three trillion pounds is invested in businesses and the real economy and so on. So how that money is invested really matters. And latterly, as issues around governance and the way in which asset owners so pension fund trustees start to engage with companies and start to hold companies to account, the climate issue with that then becomes ever more relevant. So when you're then looking at it, now for me, you're saying how can that money be mobilised in a way to help shift behaviour within organisations and businesses? How can you create the money that is required to fund the transition? So resilient infrastructure and different forms of investment, carbon capture, so all of these things that we know have to happen, they have to be funded and financed. Great. Well, yeah, great to be talking to a pensions geek. So thanks for uh, thanks for being here. <laughs> I'm interested to know as well, just a bit more about, I guess, what what led you to 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 these kind of career choices i guess um and particularly i guess thinking about your your time studying at the university of of leeds how how do you see that jennifer sort of helping you on your way to to where you are now 
one of the fantastic things about Leeds is its ability to pick lots of different modules and quite an array of courses to really stretch and broaden your interests. Um, I'm not going to pretend that my module doing traditional alcoholic beverages was particularly helpful in my career, but I did manage to pick courses like development economics and actually my favourite course at uni, which was the economics of famines. Uh, with Dr. Quentin Oftram, where I first saw how you could combine this sort of finance economics side of the world with the sort of climate environmental side and looking into, I think I did my essay on the 2015 famine in Somalia, where there was a severe drought. And you, I never before then saw that you could combine these elements. So I finished my economics degree. I, I did an unsurprising step into working at the Bank of England, finance and all that side of things, but always had in the back of my mind this thought of, you know, how can I actually get back to that point where I'm combining some these two interests? And when I first sort of was working at the bank, I wasn't on the climate side of things. There wasn't, wasn't even much going on there at that time. But as soon as I saw uh, that they were hiring for this area, I sort of jumped in as the second person to get involved in this work. And I had my basis of economics um, to sort of give me that credibility because at the Bank of England, we are economists, we're not climate scientists, but I could also use my courses that I'd done in famines, in development economics to sort of demonstrate that I really had this keen interest that I tried to already think about these issues before. Excellent. That's that's brilliant to hear. Ian, you, you I don't know if you uh, have have never left Leeds after your PhD or have, did you did you go away and come back again but in any case what what's it been like for you kind of having that as a as a foundation I guess to, to start your career? So I've never left Leeds um, but having never left Leeds I consider to be an advantage because actually I am acutely aware of the breadth of what goes on at the university and I'm quite connected into sort of key groups in a lot of areas, but particularly with things like the Priestley for Climate, so the interdisciplinary research that goes on. But one of the things that I've felt fundamentally important as I've gone through academia is to be very engaged with the real world. And so I've actually spent a lot of my career engaged with issues of pensions and practice rather than just in sort of academic journal and all the, all, all the things that go around that. And so that mix of being at Leeds, being able to access this vast area of people and talent and skills, but also the, the credibility that being at Leeds gives you to go in to work with people in the city of London or work internationally with co-authors and everything else has really enabled me to create this space where actually we now have world-leading climate scientists talking to people in the business school and saying how can we collaborate and work together because actually when we start to put these things together we can have a really interesting offering and help shape that sort of future both in terms of the climate side and in terms of the finance side. Yeah that's great it's certainly brilliant to hear that the collaboration you've been able to do over the years at Leeds and Long may that continue. Uh, so let's turn let's turn to COP twenty six now. I was very fortunate that uh, I got to go up there and, and represent the place based climate action network as well as climate action leads that I'm working for, and I also got to take to the streets and, and join some of the really huge marches that that were taking place around the negotiations themselves. I'd love to hear your own perspectives of what COP twenty six was like for for you guys yeah I thought it was I thought it was great it was I did get to go which is very fortunate um I felt a real feeling of 
optimism there when I was sort of in the meetings, in the events, everybody seemed really positive about the things that we'd achieved and being able to see everything come together. I think also everybody being able to come together probably for the first time in a long time for a lot of people. Um, it was a really fantastic feeling um, at the at the events itself. I think reading the sort of news coverage of it really got quite a mixed response or seemed to sort of change as the two weeks went on, I suppose. What was really clear, and certainly from my standpoint and the areas I was involved in, is that this is no longer an issue just for environment ministers um, and those interested in the sort of science side of things. It's clearly a finance issue now as well. And we saw that really clearly, the fact that it's the first time we had a theme day that was dedicated to finance itself. It was also the first COP that was attended by so many finance ministers. You had you know, Janet Yellen, Rishi Sunak, all the really important finance ministers from across the world coming to talk about these issues and, and really just showing that it's relevant for them just as much as uh, the environment ministers as well. And we have the financial sector as well showing up and putting their backing um, to these issues and, and clearly demonstrating that they're involved and they're at the table. So I think there are some elements that are maybe a little bit disappointing in terms of, you know, the national national government agreements on maybe not ending coal or the fossil fuel phase out. But I think the fact that we've got sort of the money there and sort of finance in the conversation now is a real step in the right direction and a real signal, a sort of positive change. So we can be more than confident than, you know, we've ever been before that we're going to get there. If we've got the market involved, there'll be money flowing to the activities that are good for the climate and good for the transition and hopefully away from those that are not. Great. Well, um, yeah, that's that's excellent to hear. I- Ian, what, what was your experience like uh, at COP26? So again, it was somewhat similar. I was up for two days and I was I was the day I was really focused on was the finance day as well. But one one thing that I felt I thought I knew what big was and what global was, and actually this is the first event I have been to in my life that I can say was truly global. I think the fact that it was truly global says something in speaking to some of my colleagues from the consortium and from Leeds who have gone to numerous COPs and gone back quite far. They said it never used to be like this. It was a fringe event for climate scientists and little bits of government. And what you've also got is a shift in things like advocacy. So if you are coming from the UK or you're coming from the US or a developed nation, you've got huge teams of negotiators and resource. And for other parts of the world, that is simply not there. But actually, there's now groups that are dedicated to supporting these parts of the world in the global south and so on, and making sure that their voice is recognised and heard in, in a comparable way. And it's not to say that it's optimal, but I think that's a massive shift in how this is actually done. One of the things as well, COP's just an event. It's a point in time that brings everybody together and it's actually what happens after it that really then starts to have an effect. So I take things like the the agreement on methane has been really, really important. So that 30% reduction, I think it was 105 nations, including the US by 2030. I think that is not the optimal agreement on methane but it's an agreement and there wasn't one before. And so again, it has shifted the dialogue and through time, that will be something you will expect. The 30% reduction will be increased through time and those nations that aren't involved, that are 
really quite significant in the methane product the production of methane, they will come on board too. And so I think that kind of momentum is really important. So the politics has moved in one direction and it seems much more cohesive and joined up. It's a collective effort globally rather than a local effort. And then with the money coming through as well on such a scale, the momentum is in the right direction for this to be a positive outcome. Yeah, and I guess in I guess in the lead up to COP, um and and as it got underway, I guess one of the one of the things that I kept hearing quite a lot was around the sort of failure to deliver on the the promise of hundred billion dollars in climate finance um, for for kind of developing countries. I think that pledge was supposed to be achieved by twenty twenty, um, and they're sort of now estimating it might be twenty twenty three. But but we did also see good news that came out of COP26. I think it was nearly 500 global financial services firms that agreed to kind of align this $130 trillion, which I've read is about around 40% of the world's financial assets um, with this kind of goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. So it'd be great to hear your kind of biggest takeaways really on on what COP26 has achieved or, or not achieved on climate finance. Yeah, maybe I'll jump in on the on that because that was something really core to our team working towards achieving that and getting it together in the very smoothly named GFANS, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, not to be confused with OnlyFans. And what the idea behind that is, is that you see in the news, I feel like sometimes it's every other day or every every day even, there's some other financial firm, bank, insurer, asset manager committing to net zero. And really the question is, what does that mean for a financial firm? It doesn't mean what are your emissions from your office buildings and let's switch to renewable energy. It means what emissions are you financing? What loans are you giving out to which companies? What are they doing with that money? And how do you transition that, those financed emissions to net zero to make sure that you're uh, aligning to the transition? Um, and the idea behind GFANS was to get this collection of financial companies together and bring some credibility to those commitments and make sure that they're transitioning their business models to net zero and also just working to accelerate those efforts in general. So bringing together their combined expertise to come overcome some of the more challenging issues around this space, because as as I said before, it is such a new area. So yeah, as you said, we had a fantastic uh, group that got together by COP. So we had over 450 major financial institutions, including the likes of HSBC, JP Morgan, BlackRock, expanding across 45 countries. So we need global coverage and we, we really did get quite a good global uh, coverage from, from those companies. And yeah, the big figure is that these companies are responsible for assets um, under their management of over $130 trillion. So it's masses of money that if you compare that to what's estimated investment need to get us to net zero over the next 30 years, which is $100 trillion, it is over that investment need. So it's a really clear uh, signal that we are starting to get the commitments that could get us to net zero. But the idea of GFANS, as I said, was to bring some credibility to these commitments. So how can we make sure that this money is actually flowing in the right places. And a lot of that focuses on things like near-term results. So not just thinking about 2050, and this is the same as would apply to a government, it's what are you doing in the near term? How are you also contributing to the fair share of the 50% emissions reductions that we need by 2030, which is what the IPCC says we need. 
It's also making sure that those sort of pathways that companies are aligning to are based on rigorous science-based scenarios and also just more accountability and transparency. So reporting annually, every GFANS member is required to report annually on their progress to getting aligned to this uh, net zero transition pathway to make sure that we can identify who is doing what they're saying they're meant to be doing and who's not quite meeting that mark. But this is really just the start of the journey. As as you say, sort of COP is just one day and we need to now look forward and see how firms making these commitments and all the other things that were announced at COP are implemented. But at least we can take very positive sign from the fact we've got that massive amount of financial resource now backing the transition and we can use that momentum off the back of COP to just really drive home all those commitments. Yes. Well, congratulations for for playing a part in that. That's, uh, yeah, extraordinary. Uh, Ian, what were your sort of takeaways from from COP26? So I think on the $100 billion, I think that's a pretty big failure because globally, while that's a massive sum of money, it's not. So when you look at that in the context of the, the sort of financial market capital, if you look at some of the things around globally to the response to the pandemic, the fact that we can't get $100 billion to support bits of the world where climate impacts are happening now has to be acknowledged as a failure and more has to be done on that. Have, if I had not been at COP, I would have just read that as a sort of a headline and gone, all right, well, it's, it's just one of those things that happens. Having been there and listened to a whole range of different speakers from all over the world, from the Global South, amazing talks on nature and biodiversity in places like Costa Rica and things like that, places like that, then what you're looking at is $100 billion globally is material to the people who need it now and have not delivered that. Now, I think when you then look at the large-scale commitments, as Jen's saying, this is a direction of travel that says, long-term, this commitment is there, but it's those intermediate steps, and it's that COP is a point in time. It's not an end point. It's what next. And I think the challenge around some of that money is what is the science that is required to measure that so you can say this is what good looks like and this is what bad looks like, because actually it's very difficult and how, how do you track and measure progress in a meaningful way? And also climate science will evolve through time. So what is best in class science today will become outdated. So it's not just about making sure that the science today as we know it is how we set those frameworks and benchmarks. It's saying, well, actually, as we know and understand more, then actually those frameworks and benchmarks have to evolve in some way. So I think the the, the direction is good. Um, but the, the other challenge is it becomes harder and harder to do. So as if we assume, I think when I started looking at this, Mark Carney had a piece in the FT, or at least it was quoted in the FT, that said UK pension funds are invested for a 3.8 degrees future, which is essentially we might as well give up. Now, pension funds won't be anything close to 2 degrees just now, but you will see that progress from where they were to where we want them to be, and that will happen locally and globally. But as you go from, let's say, 2.4 to 2, getting from 2 degrees to 1.8 is incrementally harder. It's essentially going from baby steps to huge leaps and bounds to scaling Everest. And so through time, it becomes harder and harder. And I think that's a, that's a really big challenge for finance in general, because it's how, how do you progress the money to be res- 
aligned to the one and a half degrees, I think, is a challenge which is not well articulated just now, but I think will start to come through in the conversations that we see in the coming months and years. I couldn't agree more on that, actually, Ian. And, and some of the work that we're trying to do, I said through GFANS, it's about these credible commitments, but it's also about working together on some of these really important issues because there are so many and they are so challenging. And so much of what you were saying is stuff that hopefully over the next year or even longer we'll be making some pretty good progress on. And that includes looking at what exactly does uh, the science say about getting to net zero? How can we make sure we're using the latest uh, science? Obviously, the IPCC is coming out with updated scenarios not too far away. And how can we integrate those? And also looking into those um, those metrics you were talking about, you know, portfolio warming. How can we attach some sort of temperature outcome on a portfolio? It sounds quite abstract and quite hard to get your head around, but how can we take this bundle of assets that a company's invested in or a pension funds has and and represent what would that be for the world? So what would that mean if that was the world and how many degrees of warming would we have if if we if that was the world uh, in assets? So there's so many of these issues that need working on. And uh, luckily, we now have you know, a group of people who are willing to come together and work on them together. But uh, there's lots of expertise out there. And I know that through those working groups, we're going to be engaging with academics and uh, lots of NGOs and people who've been doing this thinking for a while. So it seems like lots of good progress to come, hopefully. And I'm sure we'll be calling on you to give your more points of view. That's great. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested, I guess, to know if we were one of these financial service firms that's that signed up to this i'd be interested to know i guess what what they do differently as a result of of aligning to this so and i guess i guess the interesting thing is that money if that money's aligned to 1.5 degrees is not only about funding the things that are aligned with that and i guess the the greener kind of uh, investments i guess it's also part of not funding the things that are be going to blow a 1.5 degree budget and that obviously relates very much to the kind of divestment movement um, around in particular uh, trying to put pressure on the banks and and the the pension funds that have money that that are directly invested in the particularly big kind of fossil fuel companies so is divestment part of what what those financial service firms are going to need to do to 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 align to this this agreement so divestment has to be part of it, but divestment doesn't materially do anything in terms of the overall climate. So if you're a pension fund and you have a, a portfolio of investments and you sell some assets, somebody else buys them. So actually, the while your portfolio has less carbon, the carbon is still being produced, it's still somewhere else. So you, you get yourself into a complicated situation because you have improved your climate resilience in your portfolio on one measurement basis, but globally you've not impacted the climate because the carbon is still being produced somewhere else and it's potentially being bought by an investor who doesn't care and is quite happy because the returns come through. And at some point that breaks down, but in the next five to 10 years, then probably not. So it's not just that that engagement piece in making businesses in general move in a different direction from where they are and move faster requires the weight of money in an active and engaged ownership base. So I think that's that's the bit where financial capital is, is really important today. And then the other bit, is what do you fund going forward? 
What businesses do you finance? What loans do you provide? And all of that has to change because you cannot be funding and financing the things that are contributing to climate change. So there's two different levers going on at any one point for me. I totally agree with with those points that Ian made around divestment. It seems like such a logical thing at first. You think, you know, if you're a company committed to net zero, a bank committed to net zero, you shouldn't be lending to a fossil fuel company. But actually, in reality, if you're thinking, if 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 you're truly trying to change the impact of climate on the economy and you're trying to transition to net zero, that's not really going to have the real world impact. It can be frustrating, but actually, if you are serious about having an impact engagement, active engagement, where you're going out to companies and you're saying, look, what are you doing about your transition plan? How are you aligning to net zero? What are you doing to transition your bo- your business model away from fossil fuels towards renewables or you know any any sector? How are you transitioning effectively? Because every sector does need to transition. And you can have influence there. I mean, there's more and more every day examples of, of success in this. And the one over the summer that was quite uh, well recovered over the news was the pretty small activist investor, Engine Number One, they actually managed to get three seats on ExxonMobil's board with some climate sort of friendly board members on there and had a mandate basically to get them to prepare to move away from fossil fuels. I mean, that's massive. That's such a significant impact. And if instead they just divested, what would have changed? Arguably not much. So we're seeing this. We've got groups like Climate Action 100 Plus, which is a coalition of over 600 investors who are pooling together to sort of have an even bigger voice in this. And they said earlier this year about half of the companies that they're targeting have actually set these net zero targets now. So it is harder to measure. It's a lot easier for a company for a company to say, look, we've divested from all these com- bad high high carbon companies and we're trying to demonstrate we're doing something, which is a lot easier to do. But that active engagement is going to have more of a real world impact it is just harder to measure but you do still have the threat of divestment divestment there so it is still an option if you know your engagement isn't working and we're actually seeing this approach being taken by the bank of england who've just a few weeks back uh, said they're going to be starting to integrate into their sort of corporate bond purchase scheme where they'll be requiring energy and utilities companies to set net zero targets and also all companies will need to be disclosing their climate risks and you know they've said you need to do this if you fail to do this, ultimately you could face divestment if you know you don't act. And I think that threat of divestment is is really important, but the active engagement is definitely where you'll have more of, a, of an impact. So pretty much I say the most important thing is that it's not a binary invest, don't invest, divest decision. It's about accounting for these climate impacts, the climate risks at every stage of your financial decision making. And it feeds through to your pricing and then will have actually more uh, impact on driving that transition. So companies and banks, insurers, asset managers that are serious about having an impact and aligning is should definitely always go for the some more active engagement approach, even though it is more difficult. Yeah, thank, thanks for that. That's, that's, that's very interesting. I think, um, I guess, that one of the strengths of the divestment movement and potentially reasons that it is, that it's got to the, the size that it has now I guess is around the the sort of clarity of the message, uh, and it's interesting that that from your much more experienced perspectives, actually the impacts are not as as clear cut as it as it seems on on the on the surface. Um, 
But I guess the other thing I'd add is that activists are trying to shine the spotlight on historic injustice, the greenwashing, the disinformation campaigns, all of that 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 a lot of the big fossil fuel companies are, are tied up in. And therefore, whether or not what whether or not the impact uh, on on their bottom line changes or not, actually, it's it's an act of uh, cutting the ties, and um, it's kind of almost exclude them, uh, exclude them, kind of uh, from a from a social acceptance point of view. So, on, but on on that point about the divestment movement, I think it's really important that that exists. And if you look at, there's lots of different groups that create pressure from someone like Greta Thunberg, who's clearly front and centre in a lot of this, talking about the intergenerational aspects. And you look at somebody like Richard Curtis with Make My Money Matter in the UK around pension funds. All of these things are coalescing around a direction of travel and they're creating the impetus and the pressure for change. The clarity of message is really good for divestment and that creates action and that action creates pressure and it's then people saying well I don't want my pension fund invested in this way or whatever else and it's that that then forces the banks or the asset managers or the asset owners or the governments to do something and it's uh, and it's so you can't you wouldn't get to where you are without it and it has to maintain and it has to continue because if it doesn't we only have about 10 years to start to have a get on track for this and it becomes incrementally more difficult with every year and so actually it's fundamentally important that these groups exist and continue to do what they do great well we're we're almost out of time i want to ask you a a final question uh, to both of you which is i guess what advice would you give to to someone that's listening maybe they're studying at leeds or, or elsewhere but they're they're kind of they're they're sucked in they're they're interested in the kind of economics of of climate change what what would your advice be, Jennifer, in, in terms of, I guess, following in, in your footsteps? I'd say that if you're interested in climate, it doesn't matter what career path you're choosing or you know what degree you're doing. Climate is an issue that is going to impact every country, every business, every person, probably across the entire world. And therefore, every job, every company is going to need to think about how they're responding to these issues. And so no matter what career you're finding yourself on the way to, you can think about how climate change will impact that. When I first joined the Bank of England, I didn't think I could be talking about climate change every day and I'm thrilled to be, but it wasn't something I foresaw. But I think more and more companies are realising that it is going to be relevant and so I just encourage people don't you don't need to be doing pure climate science I mean definitely some people do that but some people can just integrate it into their into their other professions that they're doing and we need those that are interested in climate to be doing that and we need them to be able to have those conversations because one of the biggest challenges certainly for the financial sector is just the fact that they speak a completely different language to climate scientists there are two groups that have not really had to interact much until the last few years so having people that have got an interest in climate that are familiar with maybe not the technical technical detail but at least the concepts that will just be so helpful in trying to integrate these issues into decision making in whatever sector you end up in so I would just encourage you to sort of follow what your career path seems to be don't think you need to throw two years of an accountancy degree in the bin and go on to something sciencey but just think of how you can bring these issues into your career is my one piece of advice great thank you 
and Ian, I guess you're you're almost in that sort of translator seat between some of the climate scientists, including at Leeds, and the kind of the financial sector. What what advice would would you give to someone? So I think it's very similar. Um, and if you are at Leeds, I think you should really be availing yourself of all the opportunities that there are, because there's so much that goes on with within the degrees that we have and the optionality that students have that actually there's so much more that you can pick up on and get involved in. But as well as that, there is a shift within what we're doing at Leeds where actually climate-related issues as they as they sit in relation to any discipline are now actually starting to be integrated into what we do. So actually it's not going to be something that you have to opt into, it's something that's going to be given to you. Now we're not there but this is the direction of travel because there is not going to be one aspect of your working life where this is not relevant. And so in terms of developing people and making sure that they have the right skill sets for the careers that they will go into in a a whole world of new jobs, because that's what's also coming, then the university is working to do that integration so that it becomes core to what we do in every aspect of sort of student education. That's brilliant. And uh, yeah, I... I'm kind of excited about seeing that that transformation take place myself as well. Well, sadly, our time's up for today, I'm afraid. It's been brilliant to talk to you both. So thank you again for sharing your climate stories with us. Thank you very much. I hope listeners agree that was a really eye-opening discussion on climate finance. can sometimes feel like a bit of a dry topic, but money seems to make the world go round. So it's clearly an important one. This has been episode three of My Climate Story. Thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to our show. It really helps. And hey, maybe recommend us to a friend. Do check out our previous two episodes in this mini-series on sustainable fashion and empowering citizens to take action. They're well worth a listen. That's it for today. I've been Simon Moore. Thank you for listening and do take care.